It's May 1895. The sailing vessel O.J. Walker is on a journey across Lake Champlain, a lake that touches Vermont, New York, and Quebec. Known for its ability to carry heavy loads, it took on a load of bricks and roofing tile from the brown brickmaker at Milton, Vermont. The O.J. Walker was attempting to make the port of Burlington when the storm began. All seemed to be fine. The captain knew about the storms and simply figured that he would make it through like all other ones. After all, there was no danger of rocks to run across, ships to run into. No, he thought to himself, they would survive the storm like they had so many others before. And he thought wrong. Much of the captain's surprise, the heavy seas caused the walker to spring a leak. As the ship rapidly filled with water, the cargo shifted, spilling some of it into the lake. The captain righted the vessel only to have it then sink beneath the waves. The captain and crew took refuge in a small rowboat and were able to make their way to safety on the shore and avoid themselves dying in the freezing waters of Lake Champlain. I tell you this story because I think it can serve as an analogy for us in the subject of parenting, and particularly now the topic of parenting teenagers. It can seem as if it's smooth sailing as parents when the children are young. They've encountered other conversations. They have feel like they've been successful in those, but they enter into those teenage years and the storms begin. The waters become rough and devastation always seems but one incident away. The problem for the captain of the O.J. Walker wasn't anything outside of his vessel. No, in fact, it was the integrity of his own ship that caused it to crumble under the storm and sink. This can often be what it's like with teenagers. We cannot control this world or any outside influences as much as we wish we could that would seek to have our kids, but the integrity of our own homes Marriages and Christian lives often explain more about our teenagers and their struggles than anything else. And I would say for those of you who even have kids that are not yet teenagers, do not give in to the temptation to think, I will only care about this once my kids become teenagers. To think that way oftentimes can become too late. And not too late by way of discouragement, but too late by way of a missed opportunity to be well prepared. We are reminded that navigating through the teenage years can either bring disaster or delight. Similar to yesterday, let me help establish, if you will, the historical context of the youth of today, where we came from in society. Backing up earlier into the history of our country from 1790 to 1840, there was a large migration of young people that occurred as they left their agrarian roots in rural America and ventured into the large and growing metropolitan areas to find jobs. Saying that differently, there was a shift from agricultural society to an industrial society. When you primarily worked in the fields with your parents and grandparents to now coming into the city to work in factories, providing for the families back home. In 1875, the Supreme Court made a decision to allow public tax dollars to fund, for the first time, high school education. And that would lay the groundwork of what would become known as youth culture. 
It was not until the 1940s that the term teenager was first used, a term that seems ubiquitous today, common in all of our hearing. It was first used by an anonymous writer to describe an age group that had suddenly become of great interest to marketers and social reformers. A few years later in post-World War II era, the concept and recognition became a force to be reckoned with. Due to free time, extra money, less adult supervision due to the presence of an automobile, when otherwise if you wanted to see a girl, you had to go sit in the front porch of her house while mom looked out the window at you. Instead, now at the automobile, you could leave the property. The youth of America became an age group to be reckoned with. The football teams, the cheerleaders, the bobby socks, the rock and roll, the muscle cars, and the rebelliousness became the identity of this new youth culture. It only developed more and more until you get into the 60s with the free love culture and sort of the anti-institutionalism. Today, youth culture is marked by its technological savviness and limited input from its homes. Parents, when it comes to operating something as basic as their televisions, asking their kids how to help them know how to interact with the remote, often feel outclassed and outgunned in the areas of these topics of technology. The parental challenges for today with teenagers comes at many levels. Just think about the observation of youth. They change in really three fundamental areas. They change physiologically. They literally go from being young, cute children to the budding reality of a, an adult body. They start to develop in puberty. Their body starts to become activated for the responsibility ahead, work and childbearing and the like. They also change sociologically. They go from hiding behind their mom's and dad's legs as they meet an adult, not coming out of the room when they're called, to now be expected to have to sit down and interview for a job, to have to fill out applications to college, to be able to interact with their peers in conversation, to move from thinking about the opposite sex as having cooties to now beginning to actually think of them as cute. They also change theologically, theologically in the sense that they go from largely believing whatever their parents tell them to believe, be it about vegetables or about television, to about God, to what do they actually think themselves? They begin to make their own professions of faith, and those professions are then tested. Because it really isn't until their adolescent years, their teenage years, that they begin to really feel the pull of the flesh, the world, and the devil. They begin to identify if they're in Christ, their spiritual gifts, and they begin to be encouraged to use them. And they begin to be expected to make contributions, not just go along for the ride. There are opportunities to recognize here, in the light of these opportunities, to see what comes. Education and the expectation that they go from not knowing how to do their homework to actually being responsible doing their homework, or the homework being so difficult for you that you have to get them a tutor to help them. The idea of sports and other means of competition from band practice and the like, musical performances, to their own spiritual accountability, the idea of having them to have a, not only own a Bible, but to actually be encouraged to read that Bible. It's with this in mind that I want to give six practical steps to help successfully navigate the teenage years while parenting them. First of all, and fundamentally, is to know your teenager. 
know your teenager. I don't simply mean know them by name. I mean know them in relationship. There's always the parent's perspective versus the teenager's perspective. Teenagers often comment that their parents do not know them. Parents of such teenagers would disagree, citing a long history they have of going back and forth to school, soccer practice, birthday parties, family vacations, etc. But such a response indicates is that parents are often confused about what does it mean to really know their teenager? What does it mean to actually know them well? While there is a transition that takes place in a person's life from ages 11 to 13, it often comes either for that young age for young girls or a little bit older for young men, and this transition is one of puberty. Related to the timing of such physiological changes, there are significant developments in other areas. Parents have to learn how to be aware of these and to respond. Too often, parents fall asleep at the wheel during child's early years. As a result, a crisis seems imminent during the child's teenage years. Children are not used to talking with their parents in teenage years because they're not used to talking to their parents when they were younger. So there's an area to consider, areas like thoughts, motives, friends, temptations, and how to do so in a way that's not simply, as I said yesterday, a monologue, but a dialogue, genuinely wanting to know them. It should be the practice of every parent, mother or father, whether they're single or married, to be good at asking questions and listening. And to whatever answer is then given, to not follow up with a statement, but to follow up with another question. Learn to ask these questions and then avoid answering them yourself. Teenagers know what leading questions are like. They know when you're making a statement in the form of a question. To be quite honestly, we know this in marriage as well. I said to my wife the other day, as she asked me a question, what it was specifically, I can't remember, but I said, I've been around long enough to know what a statement sounds like in the form of a question. And so our kids can be the same way. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul teaches Timothy to flee youthful passions. This idea of youthful passions is the recognition that there are phases of life that present unique temptations. What are your sons or daughters? What will be your sons or daughters? Do they think that they're Christian or not? What are their common temptations? For those of you who have multiple children, you understand your children are different. You raise them the same, but that doesn't mean they're the same. There's different challenges to face. Communication skills, friends of their teenagers, the culture they live in, the style that they choose, the music that they listen to. To recognize this, part of the challenge for us as parents is to be able to make the time to learn from other parents who sometimes are just but a few years in front of us. And sometimes we learn from them, maybe it's not only what to do, it's we learn from them what not to do. If they could look back and ask questions about what they would do differently. The second practical step to successfully navigating the teenage years while parenting is to recognize problematic parenting practices recognize problematic parenting practices. I'll give you some examples to consider, specifically four. One is referenced yesterday, but I want to give it more application now, and that is fear-based parenting. Fear-based parenting. We're scared of Hollywood, the internet, the public school system, Halloween, the gay community, drugs, alcohol, rock and roll, rap, parting neighbors, unbelieving softball teams, liberals, and Santa Claus. We're scared of all of it. 
The problem is the strategy for parenting is based on fears and anxieties. What product do you get with this kind of parent or with this kind of teenager? You get a teenager who is intimidated, unprepared, and doesn't have a passion for the lost people. Or they rebel against the Lord, parents, and the church. They either embrace fear, and they are often characterized by anxiety and worry themselves, or they reject it recklessly and irresponsibly and live with the ticking time bomb of their own consequences. Second is behavior modification parenting. Behavior modification parenting, this parenting method assumes that the best education, the best environment, the best information, and the absence of any negative influences will increase a teenager's chance of turning out, quote-unquote, well. The problem here is it operates on the wrong assumption that the problem is outside the child, not inside the child. The product here is that it produces a teenager who is a graduate of the Pharisee school and has learned that all matters all that matters, <coughs> excuse me, is their actions, not their heart. In this situation, you end up producing more legalism than anything else. A third sort of flawed thing to pursue in parenting is what's called crisis management parenting. Crisis management parenting, the parent is largely absent from inserting themselves into the life of the teenager until something big and bad happens. A bad report card, a call from a teacher, caught in a major sin. Then mom or dad shows up and has the big talk, Ask questions like, how could this have happened? The problem here is that the parent is only reactive, not proactive, and there's little to no relationship to appeal to when instructing. The product here is a rebellious teenager who does so in order to get a response from parents or a teenager who lies to avoid notice and attention from their sin. They're the stealth kids. They're good publicly, but they're really bad privately. And they try to just keep that from the parents. Another flawed approach in parenting is the reputation-controlled parenting. Reputation-controlled parenting is a method for the benefit of the parent more than the teenager. And this typically started when their kids were younger. Not before, not when they were teenagers but even younger. It says, people will know how good of a parent I am by my teenager's church attendance, their dress, their hair, the school they attend, the amount of scripture that they can quote, the kind of Bible that they carry, and on and on it goes. The problem here is that the motives for a teenager's decisions are wrong. This parent is driven by a fear of man. The product is a hypocritical teenager that knows that they are being manipulated and has two lives to live, one public to please the parent, at least the parent's reputation, and one private. As long as the parent's reputation is being protected and preserved, they're fine. These are only four examples of faulty parenting. More could be given. The point is to identify if there are any current practices of handling the teenager that are ungodly. In doing so, you want to avoid the two parenting extremes, categorically overprotection and no protection, both of which will lead to exasperation. The third practice to help navigate the teenage years is to understand your God and evaluate frequently. Every parent has big dreams for their children when they grow up. Uh, you want them to be the co-owner of the family business. You want them to be a lawyer, a doctor. 
Sometimes it's because you want them to do what you did. Sometimes you want them to do what you were never able to do, either by opportunity or by accomplishment. Oftentimes, parents have, understandably, the greatest of aspirations for their kids. Married with children, professional athlete, whatever. You should examine your expectations for your children and ask the question, are your expectations indicative of actually any idols you have yourself? Too often, parents drive their kids in the direction that actually serves the parents' idols, which ironically disciples kids in idolatry. How successful they'll be, how intelligent they are, how athletic they've accomplished their, their feats, how popular they are, their reputation. And what happens when they can't accomplish it? What will they gain? Let's start first with the most important goal any parent could have for their child, and that is Matthew 22, verses 36 to 38. Again, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Consider as a parent, if you kept that verse in front of your motivating direction to your kids so repeatedly that they had it memorized and could so regularly identify your parenting motive behind what you're doing for them. To know the Lord, to love the Lord, with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind. Your teenage son or daughter was created to know and to love and to worship God. This cannot be accomplished through any other means, through the gospel having been preached to them. This is to recognize Jesus Christ is the means by which they can know that God, be accepted by that God, and love that God. Their life ultimate goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So let's think about some sort of, with that being the overarching goal, think about some basic goals. I like to tell parents of kids in general, teenagers in particular, you cannot guarantee your child's conversion. Saying that differently, you can't save your child. God saves kids. God saves adults. God saves people. What that means practically is it's quite possible that your kid will leave your house not being saved. It's not what you want. It's not what you pray for. It's not what you labor for. But the question is, is there anything else to teach your kids in the Bible? Is it just like the Bible and only the Bible? And maybe algebra, of course. Well, Think of it like this. Part of how you can learn to love your neighbor is by the kids you raise. Because your kids will be your neighbor's neighbors in time. They will work at their places of employment. They will drive on their roads. They will live next to those people. Will they be a good citizen in that society or will they not? I say this because I do think that there are some basics that we need to remember and how to even teach our kids and send us benchmarks for when they leave our house. So for example, are they disciplined? Do they understand the very nature of work? Too often today what plagues many children is an understandable default and that is the temptation towards laziness. Do they understand that they have a responsibility to the Lord who created them, to the parents who raised them, and to others who are invested with them, be it teachers, be it coaches, be it others in society. 
You also want to consider what about their communication skills, teaching your children how to talk. I know you've got introverts. I know you've got extroverts. I would just simply caution you as a parent to just simply dismiss them in personality as a default without stretching them. Sure, your introverted sons or daughters have to learn how to ask questions. Sure, they have to put themselves in uncomfortable places. It's part of growing up. And so do your extroverted kids. They have to learn how to listen well, how to ask questions, not just give answers, how to interact with their siblings. Sometimes this just starts with learning how to teach them how to lead the family in conversation while having a meal at the dining room table, asking their siblings about their day, talking about what they're learning, talking about what they're watching, talking about what they're seeing and asking others. Also learning about something as fundamental as money. It's often said there are four basic realities every person needs to learn about money. How to make it, how to give it, how to save it, and how to spend it. But think of when a child comes into the world, what's the first thing they learn? How to spend it. They're not spending money though that they made. The last thing they're thinking about the money that they have is how to give it. The last thing they can recognize is the need to save it. They'll just get more of it from mom or dad or grandma or someplace else. But how to understand, similar to time as being a currency, so is money that God gives, all of which is from the Lord. How does the Lord want them to see that money? How do they learn how to make money? How do they learn how to give money? How do they learn how to save money, not presume on their future? How do they learn how to spend money? So let's do a quick audit. You, sitting here as adults, I would say to you, without thinking of any of you particularly by name, your own personal maturity is in part seen by how well you handle your time, how well you handle your money, how well you handle conversations with other people. Show me a 45-year-old who is still living in a constant cycle of debt Show me a 45-year-old who is just so uncomfortable in conversation. Show me a 45-year-old who just continually is inclined towards laziness and does not want to work with the responsibility not to recognize the temptation and temptations there. I'll show you a 45-year-old who still needs to grow up, still needs to mature. doesn't mean temptation goes away. It just means that we have to step into that idea of responsibility. The question is, how are we raising our kids even to, the, to this respect of even authority, which is the spiritual goals to consider. The spiritual goals of recognizing God made them. Do your children largely learn how to relate to authority, particularly their divine authority, but how they relate to human authority, which is primarily and initially yours? Or are you a negotiator with your kids? Do they learn to think of you as maybe an advisor and a provider, but not actually somebody who is determining? Too often, parents, under the banner of being nice, turn over their parenting to their children to allow their children to determine what to do. And initially, it starts when they're young because they're just honestly finding parenting is so hard to be consistent in, and or they're so tired and having to do it more than they expected to and or they simply are worried about their child not liking them 
and therefore they're playing for the short-term goal, not the long-term effect. So one of the things you need to teach your children, and not only for society, but also in their relationship to the God who created them, is how to understand authority is contrary to oftentimes thought of it today, a gift from the Lord. It is a means to protect people, to provide people. We don't think of fences as being bad. We think of fences as being good. If I tell my child to go in the backyard and play wherever you want, if there's no fence in the backyard, I might be think twice about that statement. But if there's a fence there, then they can go enjoy everything that we have for them to enjoy, and I don't have to worry. We don't think of those fences as being bad, no more than we think of the instruction as being bad. We also want them to see the wisdom of God, which is the Word of God. We want them to know that God has spoken, and it is largely His Word that's being brought to bear on their lives, be it as teenagers or even younger as children, that the Word of God is important for them to understand. We also want them to understand the gospel. The gospel is basically saying, you're going to mess up. The question is not if and when or if and how, the question is when, rather, and to know that there is a way to come back home to the Lord where the light is always left on, the door is always left unlocked, that you are welcomed here. Because otherwise, if they feel guilt and shame and the constant disappointment of a parent, they will think that way of the Heavenly Father who created them and somehow think they've out the grace of God. Psalm 71, verses 17 and 18 says, O God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me, until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who come. Paul Tripp writes, the goal is to be used of him to instill in our children an ever-maturing self-control through the principles of the Word and to allow them to exercise ever-widening circles of choice, control, and independence. Now that you're moving in the right direction, you're being honest about how your teenager is and how you've been parenting them and the right and the wrong goals for them, let's think about fourth, know how, know and apply the Word of God. Knowing and applying the Word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, a verse we've referenced earlier, just to remind you, says, These words which I command you today shall be on your heart. And then it says, You shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. The Word should not be a verbal paddle to spank your kids with. The Word should be that that you know and that you love and that you are working out with them and in front of them. You know the Word of God. You must know it your first before you can teach it to others. It's of extreme importance that you internalize the Word of God for your own sanctification. Too often, we treat God's Word like it's a punching bag. We go after it a couple times, tell ourselves that was a good workout, and then we return to our day. And this is where if you're not careful as a parent, in the sense of desperation, you'll do what I call concordance-style parenting. Concordance-style parenting is where you simply go to the concordance of your Bible, try to find the topic you're trying to adjust with your kid, and they'd be like, okay, that's helpful. I don't know if that's in context, but I'm going to say that to my kid. It's like a supreme court of opinion on their action and their attitude. 
I commend the desire to bring the Bible into the conversation, but I caution you from simply using it to kind of teach your point, as if you're trying to somehow bring in the heavy. When you do that, you'll start to cast a picture to them of how God is that way. Parents must guard against personal pride and hypocrisy. The prideful parent says, this is good for you, but I don't need it. Instead, advocate humility by practicing humility, not pride. Understand the grace that God demonstrates towards you will produce humility in your life and in your parenting. So I'll give you a classic example of this. Teenagers are often expected in youth ministries like Grace Youth and otherwise to value the voice of others in their life. Listen to your small group leader. Listen to your, your you know, youth ministry director when he's teaching the Bible. Value those voices of influence, all of which I commend. Here's the question, though. Who speaks in the parent's life? Or at some point of age 35, of 45, of 55, like, hey, I've kind of checked that box. Nothing needs, needs to be said to me. Paul says to Timothy, his final epistle before he's going to die, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Christian parents must understand that the tool that God has given them to raise their son or daughter is the Word of God. And what's interesting is, Paul says that in 2 Timothy 3, but listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 1, just two chapters earlier. He says the following, Chapter 1, verse 5, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it's in you as well. He goes on in chapter 3, verse 15, to say, from childhood you have known the sacred writings of which you are able to, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There's something very encouraging here and simultaneously concerning. Encouraging, Timothy was taught the Scriptures by his mom and by his grandma. What a testimony. And I would say to the women here, both married and those who are single, you're raising future Timothys. The ability to have a voice into your child's upbringing is profound. It's also noticeable of who's not mentioned here. There's no mention of a dad. There's no mention of a granddad. The Scripture is silent on this issue, but you have to understand, perhaps even recognizing why it was even more meaningful for Paul to say to Timothy, you are my true child in the faith. It's meaningful for Paul to say that as it is probably for Timothy to hear that. Because likely did not have a dad. Likely did not have a grandfather to teach in the Scriptures. The question for the men here is, will your sons and daughters not talk about the mom, may they talk great about the mom, but will they also talk about you as a father? Are you known for knowing the Word, loving the Word, and teaching the Word? Will your kids have the same testimony where Paul says to Timothy, from childhood you've known the sacred writings? Show them the Scriptures. Know the Word, practice the Word, teach the Word, apply the Word. Fifth, accept your limitations. Accept your limitations. You are engaging in a struggle that's largely a spiritual one. 
Romans chapter 9, verse 16 says, it, depends, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Think of the analogy of Jesus teaching the parable of the kingdom in Mark 4. He says the kingdom of God is like a farmer who plants a seed. And then what happens to the farmer? He goes to bed. He knows not how the seed grows. He wakes up and finds a various response to the harvest. As parenting, you have to remember the need for patience. Avoid the bargaining mindset with God. God, if I do this with my child, you'll do this, right? Almost as if you've created some type of divine debtor's ethic God to you. What do you do when you have teenage rebellion? What do you do with that attitude? Well, you have to practice consistency and steadfastness. You have to practice humility, admitting your wrongs. You have to set the standard for the family, discipline, and consequences. You have to follow through. You have to be sure that your teenager knows and understands the reason and the basis for every rule and that they know and understand the consequences and the basis for those. You have to choose your battles. You have to avoid exasperating your children. I guarantee you this. There are going to be certain decisions that you're going to make for your teenager that other parents in the same church are not going to make for theirs. And that is okay. Because those parents are having to make judgment calls as to triaging what's my greatest concern that I need to address in my kid's life right now. Don't worry about what other people think about you and your kids. They need to take care of them and their kids. And if they're tempted to judge you based on what you're doing or not doing, I'll leave that to the Lord. Don't be tempted to be drawn into your insecurity and worry about what they think of you. Both parents need to be in agreement and practice the same strategy. Discuss often and thoroughly what discipline you'll take. Don't let your kids be surprised by discipline, be they young or be they old. Don't be shocked. They shouldn't be shocked. But, oh, there's a consequence for this action. You should tell them ahead of time. In the same way that God told Adam in the garden, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. He didn't just say, don't do this. They did it and like, oh, I have to tell you some bad news now. He told them of the consequence before they ever took the action. There was no surprise. Don't neglect other children in the family when you've got some disobedient kids in the family. All of your kids are important. Ironically, you can have sometimes kids tempted to act up to gain the attention of the parents because they see their siblings getting the attention when they act up. So how do you prioritize each and every one of those relationships? One thing we did as parents when our kids were younger is they had a standard bedtime and there would be times when they went to bed, and then we would pick one of those kids to say, you're going to stay up and be with us. And of course, other kids would say, well, that's not very fair, to which I would say to them gladly, well, you should just understand this reality for life pretty quickly. Life is not fair. So if you're looking for life to be determined based on what's fair, that's a moving standard by which you just want to embrace that now. It's not a, how we're going to make decisions in this family. Second of all, I love you too, and there will be times I get to spend time with you as well. Pray and pray and pray. Remember the appeal in Luke 18, verses 1 to 8, about the child who knocks, continually praying to the Father. Father will give bread. Be prepared and ready to help others. God will help you in your life and then be able to do that so you can be of encouragement to others. Remember the reality of rebellion 
It's not often long and lasting, but it seems like it will be in in perpetuity when it's happening in the moment. And the other side of that is the time for instruction. If your teenager does rebel, you need to learn to respond biblically. You will be hurt and perhaps tempted to be angry. It's not a time to retaliate out of fear. What often happens is parenting exposes the idols of your own heart. The things like respect. I want to be respected. My kid is not respecting me. I want or the idol of comfort. Do you know how hard I work? Do you know what I'm doing to provide for you? You should provide comfort. You should make my life easy. And when you disobey, you're not doing that. It doesn't matter whether or not the child is 2 or 12 or 18. The temptation is to respond in anger against that child. You have to be careful. Especially when it comes to the topic of discipline, you have to recognize there's a kind of an increasing spectrum. When they're young, they need to be able to connect cause and effect, which means when they're young, it's important to discipline pretty quickly to when the issue has taken place. Otherwise, they don't make the connection and they'll think of it as abusive and and unkind and overbearing. At the same time, you have to caution that there might be an opportunity by which your response is motivated not out of care for them, but out of anger yourself. And so there might be a point by which you need to wait and address that later. But as they get older, as you know, as the kids get older, it's not so much what you do in the moment, it's how you talk about and process it afterwards. When the scene has passed, the emotions have settled, there's more clarity and more receptivity to interact with the conversation not just simply about what they did, but why they did it. The sixth step in navigating through the teenage years is to utilize the church. Understand that there's a two-way relationship, the church to your home and your home to the church. There are common reasons why families remain away from the church. Fear. There are some parents who fear exposing their kids to other sinners. And they'll go to church, and it turns out there's other sinners there, not just at the grocery store or the school, actually in their churches. Or fear of exposing the church to their family's sin. Sometimes parents have guilt and shame about their own kids, and they feel like, I don't want you to know my kid, because by knowing my kid, you'll know me. Or perhaps it's pride. I don't need help. I'm good. If I change my mind, I'll let you know. Or perhaps it's ignorance. You don't realize the resource that the church can be to your family. Or perhaps it's priorities. You get misplaced priorities. The sports, the hobbies, the trips, they're all the priority. The church is not. We must remember that we desperately need each other for the purpose of prayer, of teaching, of encouragement, of accountability, of fellowship. A church that's focused on the Word is the primary agent by which God conforms His people to His image. Exposing your kids to that only but compliments doesn't compete with your parenting. Think about even the purposes of Grace Youth, for example. The desire is to equip the students for godly living in the relationship to the Lord, to the church, and to the world. This is done through prayer, through teaching, through being discipled, even bringing others along who are not in Christ to learn. I'll just say this. Remember that the successfulness is not determined by the finished product. Instead, the faithfulness to the process. I think there can be a continued expectation 
If you do the right things, listen to the right lessons, read the right books, memorize the right methods, you will sooner or later get the right child. Uh, what happens when you don't, though? What happens seemingly you've done all the devos, you've read all the books, you've memorized all the verses, you've gone to all the conferences, and your kid not only doesn't trust in Christ for their salvation, but they're still not always a joy to be with. They still forget Mother's Day. They still don't call you on Father's Day. What then? Well, then you and I get to have a real honest question. Why was I doing what I was doing? And honestly, this is a gut check for all of us in Christianity in any area of our life. What if doing the right thing doesn't produce what I hope to be the right result? Is doing the right thing in obedience to and out of love for the Lord enough for me? Or is the small print reality that I want all but demand by expectation it will produce something that I can show? This is where parenting becomes really an expose on whether or not we really do worship the Lord and the Lord alone, or the Lord both other idols that creep up onto that altar. And sometimes the idol is even our own self. Now, to be clear, this is a much easier lesson to hear than it is actually to practice. This is not unique to parenting. It's true in marriage. It's true in commerce. It's true in relationships and friendships. Take any other topic. What if you're the best friend? What if you're the best spouse? What if you're the best employee? What if you're the best employer? And you still get all of the negative results. Those are the moments by which we determine, why was I really doing what I was doing? What was the Lord teaching me about me and my relationship with Him? That's when you get to really grow as a Christian to say, is it enough? Is it enough that I please the Lord? Not perfectly, for I have a Savior, but devotedly in my love for Him. Is it enough that it pleased Him and I left the results of whatever He chose to do Himself? In that, I'm reminded of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he says to the Corinthians as they're making accusations, and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. 